Welcome to Idea Market Podcast. I'm your host, James Ellis, where we invest your attention as carefully as if it were your money. We are joined by the the great Justin Murphy, the renegade academic, marriage arranger, and other life podcaster, uh, among other things, and indie thinker, I should say. So thanks very much for joining us, Justin. It's great to have you on. Totally. Thanks for inviting me. There is there is a lot to say. You're, you're the past, shall we say, five years for you has been pretty crazy, right? Yeah, really the past two and a half now. It was about two and a half years ago that I quit academia. Time flies. And uh, yeah, since then, I've just been hustling on building out a kind of new model of the professional intellectual life on the internet with outside of institutions. So it's been my obsession and I've been working on a bunch of things related to that. Okay. Maybe I said five because those two, and that does not seem like two and a half. Seems way longer because, you know, you probably saw the other day I tweeted the days when, sorry to bring this up, you were in, you were in Little wearing a wig. <laughs> and that was like just near the time, just near the time when you, you'd left academia and it was all going down. And that seems, that seems like weeks ago, but it also seems like years ago. Yeah, I guess it was about five years ago, probably that I started getting really active on the internet even while I was a professor. So that's probably what you're thinking of. Yeah, okay. So for those who don't know, maybe the short story of what was wrong with academia for you when you were in it and why did you leave? Yeah, I mean, I've thought about this from so many angles. I've kind of given different answers over the years. It's hard to know exactly. It's This is always a complex kind of life decision when one feels called to leave a career path that one was in for, you know, more than 10 years. Realistically, the honest answer has to be probably many different factors. But the one that I really have been coming to, you know, now that I have more distance on it, is that it was probably a, a personality mismatch from the beginning. I, I think I'm just the type of person who has certain traits that are not really able to be maximized within the institutions. And I also have, you know, certain let's let's humbly call them, you know, limitations or or drawbacks or, you know, shortcomings that are particularly problematic if you're in academia. So yeah, I think that for a certain type of person, it's still a desirable job if you can get it. But I do think that increasingly, the most promising intellectuals of future generations are going to choose from the beginning to set up shop on the internet. Because if you actually are really good at thinking and you have truly creative novel ideas about traditional you know, academic disciplines, whether that be philosophy, science, or what have you, just being able to develop those ideas and pursue them and explain them and build content around them on the internet is just going to have a way higher upside, I think. And I think we're only starting to learn how to do that. I consider myself somewhat at the forefront of that. But I think once the knowledge about how to do that starts to get distributed and and uh, people understand that there is a kind of reproducible playbook, I think you'll see way more of the most influential intellectuals be internet native and way less of them will, way fewer of them will go into academia, if only because there's a, a very finite number of positions in academia, right? So I, I think what I'm saying is actually a very uncontroversial uh, prediction, if only because the number of uh, you know, meaning, meaningfully impactful intellectuals on the internet is uh, going to be larger in absolute terms. And it's mm. only going to keep growing. Okay. And um, Mike, you, did, you didn't want to go to college, right? Yeah. I always had sort of a contentious relationship 
uh, with it. I very, very reluctantly went to college and initially it was only out of lack of any other plan. It, I thought of it more though as a risk reward proposition that I was already realizing given the opportunities that the internet provided in 2007 when I started going to college, what you could do with $100,000 in four years was already much greater than what you could get from basically what amounts to an extension of high school in terms of the way your life is managed and the amount of responsibility you have. Mm. Justin, did you did you always want to do the the university career path, the academic career path? Yeah, it was really from when I was an undergrad. I, I remember it pretty clearly in kind of my sophomore year of, of university. Well, I was like, I just felt very, very strongly called to go all in on the on reading and writing and just thinking in a kind of radically disinterested way. And, you know, for a long time in human history, academia was really the only way to do that. If that's what you're calling is to you, you just feel strongly that all you want to do is read and write and pursue the truth in this kind of maniacal and often, you know, intrinsically unsustainable way. I mean, that there is a kind of uh, core logic to the intellectual life, which at first glance seems just uh, economically infeasible, right? It's generally not going to be very profitable to be pursuing abstract truth because it's an intrinsically disinterested. If you're, you know, constantly thinking about how to sell something or, or what have you, then you're by definition going to be deviating from, from, from the path of the, the radical kind of disinterested truth seeking path. And so this was why I originally was like, okay, I'm going to go all in on, acad on academia and I'm going to just fight tooth and claw to get a gig in academia and get a, get a secure paycheck as a, as a professor. And I worked super hard on that. And I, was, I also got lucky and, and succeeded very well in that. And it was only once I got there and, and really, really made it, really kind of got tenured. Well, it was the British version of tenure, but still it was, ten, it was you know, a permanent position, basically. I could have kept it for life um, pretty, pretty easily. I realized that actually the bargains and compromises that you have to make with the institutions and the bureaucracy are every bit as uh, disingenuous and compromising as the you know compromises that you have to make with the market as a you know uh, a businessman and so once i got there at the end of this long path it was kind of clear to me that you know academia is no longer this insulation from the market but actually it's a kind of you dig yourself e even deeper into a whole web of interlocking fibs and lies and and deceptions that you have to kind of participate in to keep your career advancing and keep it moving and yeah it was a, it was a, a deeply deep, deeply painful kind of disillusioning experience i mean i really did believe in the, in the myth uh, as it were that that you know if i work hard and pay my dues i'll get a cushy paycheck and then i can basically read and write and 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 say anything i want and, and think anything i want and uh, it's just it's just not true. And so then I realized that actually on the internet, you know, the um, if you are able to put yourself out there in a way that is particularly kind of honest and therefore unique and interesting, that that gives you a kind of surplus like that that earns you a kind of premium in 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 the public attention market in a way. And that I think is actually the most promising economic premium to base an intellectual life around. Because, yeah, look, it is an asset. It is essentially a kind of um, economic uh, play. It, there is an economic logic to it. But cashing in on your own 
kind of weird, unique, um, charismatic uh, flourishes is I think a, it, it's more tightly aligned with the incentive of radical, disinterested truth seeking. Even if it is its own kind of uh, threat or pitfall, or or there is there is nonetheless in the in the current inter- internet game as I see it as what I call, this is what I call kind of the indie thinker model, which is basically just building a a kind of academic career purely on the internet outside of institutions. In this indie indie thinker model, there there is this other failure mode or or pitfall or tension, which is the the requirement to lean into some kind of um kind of emotionally psychologically exciting enticing and and stimulating aspect of yourself that because that is that is kind of like the the thing that you will um ride on to to be successful in this way you do need to find that aspect of yourself that that plays in the market um and so it's not you can get lost in that right you can get you can get kind of addicted to all kinds of hot takes and you can get addicted to a cheap kind of uh, version of yourself because it leads you to get faster growth. I mean, there's no doubt about this. If you look at like a lot of people who grow fastest on like Twitter or YouTube or, or whatever, it's like very clear. You find, you find kind of the part of yourself that resonates most with the market and with the algorithms in a short-term sense. And you just double down on that and, and you go full throttle on, on that. And then Two years later, you look at your content and it's like every thumbnail, every title, every every bit of content you've produced is this kind of like uh, gimmicky caricature of of yourself in a way. And that's what happens if you if you optimize too much for growth and the instrumental uh, success. And so that's a constant failure mode, I think, of of succeeding in the indie thinker model. I think we can think of lots of examples. You know, I think um, a lot of the people in what what they call the intellectual dark web are kind of um, you know victims of this process, and it's a very powerful it's a very powerful you know kind of sh- set of structuring effects. So I, I don't actually fault anyone who, who's kind of fallen down this this hole. It's it's like a very very powerful um, attractor that that sucks people in. But I do think that there is um, a way to basically uh, hold hold true and hold fast to the the more intellectual side of things and then that itself becomes its own kind of niche and so if you're able to if you're able to to avoid the the kind of uh vulgar um, tendencies and selection effects of of the algorithms and you're able to hold fast to a, a a more pure disinterested and and niche you know disinterested truth seeking path that it's that is its own kind of charisma, and you can absolutely make it economically viable to to have to 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 own that that brand equity that 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 brand equity in the intellectual disinterested truth seeking. The only thing is that your market is going to be way smaller, and I think you just have to be aware of that and be uh, be be ben- mentally and psychologically and economically kind of um, you know prepared for that. Have that in your mental model, and then. That, so to me, that's the indie thinker model. You know, for what it's worth, James, I think I think you're you're a, an excellent example of it. And you know, I think there's more and more people out there who kind of fit this model. But it does require a real kind of explicit conscious awareness of of the trade offs and and the many traps that are out there, sucking people into you know paths that deviate from the from the disinterested truth seeking path. It's interesting to hear you talking about sort of discovering the boundaries of the market uh, in their unique characteristics that on on one hand if you're if you're too disinterested it'll limit your audience i wonder also have you experienced any limitations in terms of intensity or controversy in the sense that you know an artist might get big you know the beatles get big on their on their hits and then they evolve and they start saying other things 
is there are there places beyond which your audience won't follow you that you decide sometimes not to go? How hard do you press? What where are those limitations like? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think in general, it definitely helps to focus if you have a personality where you're most interested in a, a very well-defined themes. It definitely is in your interest to focus on those themes and be as specific and consistent as possible. As, as really, I think as narrow as you can go um, in a way that is you know worthwhile and satisfying to you, the better in terms of for for growth and for uh, success in general. I'm kind of one of those people who's kind of cursed with just constantly changing interests and and so I definitely pay the price for that. I think um, I, in other words, to use the language of your question, I often find myself kind of going. In certain directions on certain themes that you know maybe the bulk of the people who subscribe to my work don't necessarily know about or care about and so yeah i'm gonna you know quote unquote lose some of them whether that be unsubscribes or you know people who just kind of like check out or don't really care or you know have a kind of diluted image of of me and whatever they think i represent or whatever but on the other hand i'll gain some people who i'll gain some new people who are interested in that the problem is that yeah over time it, it definitely um, tends to decelerate growth when you are constantly doing different things, you know? Um, on the other hand, I do think that there's a case to be made that in the long run, if you're able to sustain it, despite the slower, the slower acceleration of, of growth that you pay for with this, with this kind of orientation, I do think that if you're able to hang on and work and, and put in consistent work for a very, very long time, like I'm talking 10 or 20 years, then I think like at the, at the 10 or 20 year mark, you really have this kind of extraordinary moat that no one's ever going to touch because, you know, and this is kind of like the Joe Rogan model, right? This is like, you know, he's got this kind of weird Venn diagram where it's like MMA comedy, like smoking weed, right? It's like, um, and, but it, it, it took him like 20 years to build it though. Right. Um, and so I think if you, I think that's kind of the lesson that it's like harder and slower in the early days. If you, if you want to do a bunch of things and have this weird, unique, kind of uh, ensemble of interests and themes. But if you're able to put in the work and actually keep growing at least slowly over the years, then you you could find yourself sitting at the apex of um, like a, a relatively massive Venn diagram, basically. So that, that's how I think about that. See, now, I think indie, indie thinkers will probably be like an undercurrent of this whole conversation. But because I, you've already given me the answer to this question, and we had these sort of loose questions that we sent over beforehand. There is one that I have to ask, especially in relation to idea market as well. And we, me and Mike already know the answer. So I'm, I'm super intrigued. I hope it's still the same answer. But is, who's, your, who's your favorite obscure genius? And uh, what, why are they so obscure? Yeah, I mean, the, my answer might change by the month. But my, my current obsession is with Martin Shkreli. I think this guy <laughs> is seriously underrated. I, um, and the, the way this all started was only, it was only a couple of weeks ago, I was on vacation with my, my in-laws and, um, you know, I tried to kind of check out of work when I'm on vacation, but at, at, at night, you know, when my wife is asleep, I like, you know, poking around the internet for whatever. It's kind of always been one of my pastimes. And, uh, I somehow got connected with, um, a YouTube channel called best of Martin Shkreli. <laughs> and it's, it's basically clips of his live streams, which he used to do around, I think it was around, like it was before he blew up. And most people will remember, maybe if there's anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, he's also known as the pharma bro. He had this kind of, uh, 
um, momentary rise to to fame a few years back, where he basically what most people know him as was uh, a a a pharmaceutical guy who has a pharmaceutical company who jacked up the prices on uh, certain prescription pills for life saving you know medicines. That that's that's pretty much what everyone knows him as, aka the pharma bro, and. Th- Probably second most well-known aspect of him is he bought this rare Wu Tang album, and uh, uh, and he's the sole owner of this uh, of a of a particular Wu Tang album that uh, the world has never heard. It's in his sole possession, and he's a bit of a troll. He likes to you know kind of you know play up these things. Anyway, so that's that's the he's public still in image. Jail. He's still in jail though, right? And oh yeah, and he's in jail. Um, <laughs> by the way, yeah. Um, and so if you want, we can go deep on this. I, I basically have learned every thing about him I, I could explain the case and like why i think it's 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 political and all of that but just i would just wanted to give people li- i wanted to give listeners the background in case they don't know who we're talking about um and so just to finish my story real quick the um that's all i knew about him as well that that was basically the mental model i had of him um that he was basically kind of a sketchy probably kind of a crook and uh kind of a an asshole who you know was just a bit of a troll and egotistical and narcissistic that was all I knew about him, what most people know about him or think about him. And then I found this YouTube channel called Best of Martin Shkreli, and it's clips of, apparently, I did not know, he was like an OG live streamer who, who did like um, live streams all the time for over the course of like a year or two, or maybe more, I'm not even sure how long. And basically, um, there's, so there's hours and hours and hours of content that he produced on, on like YouTube, or I think at the time that the big platform was Blab. Do you remember Blab? It was like a short-lived thing. I think it got acquired by Twitch. In any event, um, so he has this massive body of like of, of work, if you want to call it that, of his ideas and and teachings and and attitudes and and people would it was a call in show mostly people would call in and ask him all kinds of questions like they would ask people would ask him everything under the sun and someone went and basically clipped the most interesting bits from these hours and hours of of live streams that he did and this is the channel the best of Martin Shkreli channel. And I got it. I, I listened to like, I think almost every video on there over the course of my uh, like one week vacation with my in-laws. Um, and he's really smart. He's really, really smart. He's really, really smart. I also think he's actually a good, uh, you know, he's a bit egotistical, perhaps a, a bit narcissistic. Um, but, you know, everyone has their vices. Everyone has their pitfalls. I think he's actually really smart and actually is generally pro-social. Like, I think he's deeply motivated by um, helping people who who are suffering his, his interest in drug development. Um, is not only like uh, extremely impressive what what he's done from a very early age, the companies he, he's built and how he's built them. Um, but I do think he's gen- he's deeply and genuinely motivated to save lives. And I think the uh, the negative flack he received for you know so called like you know price gouging is is completely misunderstood. And he explains it in 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 very convincing and very clear detail that um, I, I I I don't think he ever really did anything wrong. So free Shkreli. You know that that might happen. The the uh, the impetus to to make that happen might uh, might begin right here. There you go. Um, as a quick introduction to his body of work, I'm wondering if maybe you can present him as a mashup. Like Martin Shkreli is the intellectual love child of like I don't know Taleb and Jordan Peterson or something like that. Like who who does he remind you of that people will know already? Hmm, that's a good question. Well. One thing that I didn't realize about him until I really went deep down this rabbit hole was he he's really primarily an entrepreneur and 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 so he's a, he he should really be thought of as a founder and and as someone who makes bold economic bets and then organizes capital and resources and 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 
executes on 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 big bets. So he first made a name for himself actually in hedge funds. He worked for like Jim Cramer and uh, had a few big successful deals, and that's kind of where he got his first social and economic capital and, and relationships and investors from. Um, and then basically he was he was doing hedge fund stuff around pharmaceutical industry, and then realized oh he actually saw some opportunities. And um, I don't know if people understand the markets for rare drugs, rare, rare diseases. That's his, kind of his specialty. But basically, there are many diseases out there where um, only like maybe a few thousand people ever get this disease, but it's life-threatening and, and it can kill these thousand people. Well, the economics for that kind of disease are very difficult because if there's only a thousand people, but it's a really, really urgent problem for them, um, how do you actually make it profitable or sustainable? How do you make it at all economically possible to do the research that's required to find the cure or find the solution, find some kind of treatment, and then also the extremely expensive process of clinical trials and bringing it to market? Well, as he you know, explains, the only way you can possibly do it is by having relatively high prices for those treatments. And it's really not as antisocial as people think because the only people who pay for these things are uh, insurance companies. Um, and he says himself, he's very clear. It's like complete. It's he's very clear that if you're actually an individual who doesn't have access to insurance and you need this life saving treatment that only like thousand people in the world need, you can just ask him for it. You can ask his company for it. You can like email them and they'll just give it to you for free. And he's done that many times. Um, and so it's like just a, a complete a complete media psyop basically from from kind of stupid people and and, and journalists who have too much time on their hands. Um, but I, I'm kind of getting away from your question, which was like, how should people see him yeah more through the entrepreneur the entrepreneur slash founder frame so you know if people want like you know a kind of a kind of you know public image that they could maybe associate it with i mean people will say this is like absolutely ridiculous but um i don't know something like um you know he, he put him more in the camp of like um uh like a steve jobs or like a or like a mark zuckerberg for pharmaceuticals um or maybe a better, maybe a better would be like, um, you know, people have seen like the big short, you know, uh, people will know like Michael Burry's character played by, uh, uh, what was his name? Um, Christian Bale, you know, yeah, by Christian Bale. So, so, um, that might be a little bit more sensible, like a kind of a, a guy deep in the trenches of hedge funds and, and big businesses, uh, making a kind of unpopular, weird, bold bet and then betting big on it. That, that's probably like a better uh, kind of mental frame for understanding him. Cool. I'd like to follow up on some things that you said there, James, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. um, given that he explains all of this rationale clearly and the economics are there, as someone who knows nothing, I'm, I'm interested in your opinion on why he really went to jail. Like, did the, did the media mob influence the judicial process? Is there some like sneaky, dark motive that someone would want him in jail? Like, what, what happened here? Yeah. So basically, I do believe that it's essentially his sentencing and the way it all played out, turning out pretty bad for him was overwhelmingly due to political forces, I do believe. So what happened was he was charged with a few different counts of things. And um, his legal team pursued a strategy where they were really most concerned about um, one of the charges, which had like the most the biggest potential uh, kind of sentencing attached to it. And by the end of the trial, if you look at the press conference, like when the trial's first over and you look at the press conference by him and his lawyer, they were pretty happy. They considered it a success because they, they did successfully avoid the biggest charges. And 
And so they were pretty happy about it. It looks to me like the judge sentenced very, very aggressively. The judge actually went way harder than the sentencing guidelines. And I believe that that was because he was pretty intransigent and rude uh, throughout the process. You know, he is, he's, he's, he's very cocky and he's very uh, flamboyant. And this is what, this is why people, you know, uh, he's so, this is why he's so notorious and why people hate him so much um, because he is, he's cocky. And he was like that during the trial. Like he, he was somewhat, you know, and if you guys have ever been to court or if anyone listening has ever been to court, you know, they really do look down on this kind of thing. Like they want you to be show up on time, wear a suit, look scared, be respectful. You know, they, they really expect you to have that kind of attitude. And so if you're like, you know, kind of laughing at them and that kind of thing, like the judges, they really do get personally offended by that kind of thing. And so it looks like um, this, the judge just went extra hard on the few counts that were that he was found guilty of. Um, w- even beyond the sentencing guidelines. And the final thing I'll say about the case that is important for people to know when you're kind of like really thinking about this guy is that um, it's a victimless crime. No one got hurt. Like all of his investors made their money back and then some. Like there, there's no one who got like ripped off or whatever. The actual charges were like securities fraud or something like that or con- and, and conspiracy to commit securities fraud. But um, like there's not a single party in any of it who like got hurt in any way. Um, and so... It's, it's, it's a very, it, I think it's a very political, it's a very political case. And I think the reason he ended up in jail was, was very political because even after the trial was over and the verdicts were handed out, he, he thought he was fine. He thought he was like pretty good. Um, and there was, there was not much possibility seen of him actually going to jail for, for that long. Um, so that's my read on it. How, how long did he get? Seven years. I think he'll get some time, you know, they usually get out a little earlier or whatever. I believe he's due to get out like within a year or two, I think is, is what people say. Are you going to try to get him on other life? Definitely. If I can get him for sure. That'd be great. Can you think of anything that he said that stuck with you as wise or insightful or anything that you can just kind of bring, bring to the idea market listeners who have not you know, gone to the school of Martin Shkreli, myself included. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things you get from watching all these clips of of his past live streams is that he actually was, um, you know, he, he people would call him and ask him all kinds of things. And and he was very generous with his thoughts and advice and what how he sees like all different types of topics. And, you know, what I, I think what I really like about him and admire about him and respect about him that that just doesn't get communicated in the public image um, is that he really represents like if you can find obscure truths in the world that these obscure truths that are hard to get that most people don't want to put the work into getting that most people don't want to educate themselves sufficiently to be able to get but if you can put in that work and you can do that and you can actually access obscure truths in the world that are real truths that is a kind of extraordinary economic power that you can build in extraordinary things on top of and, you know, in our world where everyone is postmodern, everyone thinks, you know, we live in this post-truth era uh, where facts don't matter. You know, this is an overwhelmingly kind of popular attitude combined with a kind of general nihilism and fatalism around, you know, uh, economic uh, challenges. Like, you know, people feel millennials today who don't have money or weren't born into, you know, advantageous in, you know, life uh, feel like, you know. Um, there's nothing they can do for themselves. There's a lot of nihilism and, and fatalism a- a- around this, um, combined with a kind of skepticism towards the very existence of of real truths. And it's like this guy is a very very badass example of how false this is because you know he didn't he doesn't have any training in in biology or chemistry or pharmaceuticals. He just 
got in through he got into this world and interested in this world through hedge fund stuff, seeing the markets and seeing how these companies, you know, kind of look from the outside. And then was like, oh wait, okay. So you mean all I have to do is do research on biology and chemistry, and I can find companies that have drugs that other people just don't know how to improve. And I can just basically get really smart on biology and chemistry. I can figure out, and if I can figure out a tiny improvement from like this drug at its current stage uh, to make it a slightly better drug with a little bit of research and testing and improvement, I can make millions of dollars. And he just went, that's literally just what he did. And he just, fig, he went deep and, and got educated and in a really self-motivated, independent way and was able to build like a massive pharmaceutical company and do like really interesting work. Uh, and so I think he really kind of represents that like um, outsider American hustler kind of attitude where like the truth is real. And if you can get a piece of it through hard work, then you, you have, you can get paid mad money <laughs> basically. Um, and I like that. I think that's badass. I don't think, I don't think we have enough, uh, you know, kind of examples of, of that. And, and also, yeah. So I would say, I would say that's kind of what I found interesting and inspiring about kind of coming to see him from my own, from my own perspective. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, it just made me very inspired to like, oh man, are there weird fields that I can actually like get really educated on? Like I spend months and months learning something really, really hard and challenging that no one else is just, just no one else is going to put in the effort. No, no one does that. You know, is there something like that, that I'm interested in that I could get really schooled on, get obsessed with, get a real edge and then build something crazy and badass and, and really high leverage. Um, there aren't many like kind of cultural, like live um, internet based cultural examples of that, that you can kind of like follow along with. And, and I like that. Well, this is what I was going to say, Justin, is um, this, this idea of spotting obscure truths in a postmodern world where there apparently isn't, you know, post-truth, everything's uh, relative, whatever. We all know that's sort of a lie. It seems that your, I think it's your most recent venture with the arranged marriages is a, is a key example of this. You've found... Would you would you consider that like a a Shkrelian obscure truth, the you know the truth of marriage? It's it's probably not a good example of what I was just saying in the sense that it it was more of a kind of uh, crazy idea that I floated pretty quickly. It didn't require years of research, but well, maybe it did in a certain way. Years of of life research, <laughs> being married, and all of that. But um, uh, yeah, so I can't I can't say that it that was based on kind of a deep exploration and years of hard work I put into analyzing you know marriage trends and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, you know, I think you know I, th I think I think it is an example of an idea that is like I don't think many people would propose that because it just sounds weird for the Western world to do arranged marriages. It just sounds like you know um, just sounds too weird. Sounds like a joke almost, or, you know, some people might say I'm like culturally appropriating like India or whatever. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I think, I think the idea of literally trying to do arranged marriages for Westerners is an, is an example of an idea that actually makes a lot of sense and, and potentially has a lot of leverage and, 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 and room to succeed. Um, but it's just a little too weird or, you know, uh, just a little too weird for most people to actually like try. Have you, have you arranged any? So no, but we are getting close. I really think we're so we're on to one. We're we're basically doing one at a time, basically. Um, and actually, just this week, I'll be on the phone with uh, two people who we think we're going to try to arrange them. Uh, we've been doing like a lot of meetings with a lot of people and kind of testing different processes for how we're going to narrow down 
from like the big data set to actual matches. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that we're, we're getting there. So how, do, how does it work? I mean, do they still do the dating phase or do they just marry straight away? So we're going to obviously have to experiment and see what people see what realistically works or not. But I, what I am pushing for is I want it to be like, it's, it's, it's a binary decision. You're either getting married or you're not. And, and so what I, the way I'm, I'm currently pursuing it is like in this meeting we're about to have this week, we're having a meeting with one man and one woman who we think after a lot of research and, and both quantitative and qualitative, who we think are you know, likely a, a good match that we believe in and we're willing to, we're willing to arrange them. Um, my, what I want to do is really lean hard on the arranged aspect and really try to minimize dating and this kind of shopping mentality, which I think is the source of the problem basically. And I'm going to say to these two people, look, we have someone we think is good. Here's some basic information about them. So you can have a little bit of a sense of, of, of where we're going. But, um, basically if you want to, if, if you want to marry them, we'll connect you. If if you're not ready for that, or if that sounds like a little too crazy for you, then you're not ready for our program. And I think we're going to ask for like a fairly large sum of money too, because it's a, you know, they, they should have skin in the game basically. So yeah, I think that's going to, that's going to be the first uh, attempt is basically, you know, pay us a very large sum of money. And if the other person also agrees and pays us a large sum of money, we will put you two together and you will get married. Um, and 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 we think they will be likely to follow through on that because they've they've given us a lot of money, right? So they don't want to waste that, right? That, I mean, that's my thinking. Mike, would it be too crass for us to create a marriage market where people <laughs> upvote the ones they think will succeed? I, and then just it's a great Justin, question. I've thought Justin a lot about the like the, well, I've thought a lot about wacky schemes because <laughs> the incentive issue is is very strange. It's a very it's a very tough problem because you don't want it. I came up, for instance, like you could come up with um, things where like um, you get one thing I was thinking about is when you pay for your arranged marriage, maybe that money goes into a pot and maybe it's maybe it's it's earning interest or something like that over time. And maybe if you stay married, you get a bit back over time. Right. You can think about, you know, you can think about interesting different kinds of extensions where you're really incentivizing and supporting stable long term marriages. Um but it gets dicey because then you then you might have you know different kinds of adverse selection where maybe people are going to be joining just because they want that annuity or something like that you know from the other person or something like that and then you have the problem of like you know actually bad marriages and and what do you, what do you do with that and so it's it's very it's very complicated um but i think you know you could definitely imagine some kind of market where that would supplement it in a sensible way James, you and I just yesterday or two days ago were talking about the possibility of doing like a podcast version of The Bachelor. Like a guy sets a date for his wedding in three months, just sets everything up except who the bride is, and then just interviews ladies on air on the podcast in order to like figure it out. It says, yeah, I, everything is booked for in a month. Do you want to be that person? Yeah, but the point we were making is what is the least amount of time you could do that where it's still someone would still like sincerely consider it who isn't in some sort of a like a crazy life moment right we sort of we, we went down to about four months but that's too long right justin you want to get out of the the modern uh is it to do with hedonism or is it to do with a certain mentality i think it has to do with people inaccurately assessing their own mate value honestly <laughs> people 
in other words, <laughs> and I think I think this is true with both genders is both genders are trying they they have a they have a a a threshold in their mind of what they consider acceptable marriage material and on both sides that mental image is greater than what they're going to obtain realistically um and i think that i think that's one one part of the core problem and so people have to learn to settle i wouldn't recommend putting that in a brochure we help you yeah. aim lower no, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm very honest and transparent. I I think, but I think, Mike, Mike, I think this is what people want and need. I, I think people get it. Like people, people see it. It's a coordination problem. It, this is a it's a game theory problem. It's not like um, uh, it's structural, right? So it's not like people can't exit this on their own. It just they just need a third party who is going to make them exit it themselves uh, through the judicious use of of incentives. So I'm, you know, it sounds bad. Yeah, when you say like um, everyone. Uh, has to lower their own standards, but really the better way of putting it is that um, in our kind of like media-driven individualistic society, everyone has suffered from a kind of psyoping where their expectations have been elevated to a self-destructive and unrealistic degree. So all we're really doing is calibrating that down to reality for them. Um, and so it's not like, so it's, it's not really that, um, well, one, people do want kind of hard medicine. I, like people would want to be told the truth, right? Um, and I think that's like one of the virtues of, of, of like my, I don't know, my personal brand or whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, what you just said, Mike, like, don't say that in public. Like I say that in public, like <laughs> the things you're not supposed to say in public, like I always say them. Um, but that's what makes people like turn their head up and be like, oh, maybe this is like, maybe this guy's onto something real. Cause he's like, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, it's not just like this, like candy coated, um, airbrushed, like a uh, business guy, you know what I mean? So, so that's part of the response there. But the other is that it's not really telling people to um, lower their standards. It's more that, um, you know, making people see the value and the beauty uh, in acceptance and, 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 um, and, and, and coming to realize the pain that they inflict on themselves through this kind of constant, like over striving basically. Yeah. And to be clear, I completely hear the very optimistic and realistic direction from which you're coming here. And I didn't mean that joke in any way to belittle that. Uh, just, just humor value there. I get you. To I get you. But there's something revealing in what, in what you said. And I, I think I, I totally get it. Yeah. No, I really like what you're saying about, Ooh. I'm sorry, James, about, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Recalibrating people's expectations, not from a matter of, uh, like, self-esteem but having been uh programmed to misprioritize different aspects of standards that you know you don't really need all these things in order to love someone and have uh, a really beautiful marriage and uh that marriage is not as much about finding the right perfect person as maybe culture portrays it to be, it's more about the characters of the two people and the intentions of the two people and the decisions and the commitments. And also that um, the sense of value doesn't need to come from you know, the sort of myths that we've all been stewing in for, for decades you know, in order to line advertiser pockets. Totally. I think the number one misunderstood thing about marriage is that like, the truth is nobody marries the right person. At, at the time that you marry them, at the time you marry someone, you're, it's just a person, but by marrying them, you make them 
someone special and someone different. And so the magic of, you know, what people, what people mean when they say things like soulmate, perfect person for me, my only, the only person for me, the only person I could ever love, like all, all of the, the magic of true love is real. It's 100% real. The only novel idea I'm trying to introduce to the public culture, which is widely not appreciated, is that all of that magic of true love comes after the decision to, to love basically yeah. it's 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 not like a pre-existent thing that you're searching for and that's why no one gets married because they think they're searching for this like perfection and they don't want they don't want to get married until they find the perfect person the right person to marry and th- that's just wrong it's like a it's a false model of how the world works and of how how love develops and forms and emerges and the actual like disillusioning you know cold hard fact of the matter is that frankly who you marry doesn't like it doesn't matter that much. <laughs> I don't think like they have to, they have to meet certain, certain minimum thresholds, right? Like you don't want someone who's abusive. You don't want someone who's a psycho. You don't want someone who's violent. Right. And then of course, you know, within certain, within reason, you want to find someone who has certain tastes and certain tendencies that are relatively well matched to your personality. Yeah, sure. That's fine. But within the the pool or within the window of people with whom you could fall in love with forever and for whom you could feel like you are their soulmate and they are your soulmate. The the number of people who could plausibly become that person for you genuinely is like probably literally millions of people. Um, and, and, and so before marriage, those people are kind of more or less interchangeable and which one you marry doesn't matter that much. Um, what matters is actually getting married, reaping all of the psychological and lifestyle and, and, and just overall benefits of being a married person. And then just tying yourself to the ship and forming the love and and the the uniqueness of the relationship and the depth of that love through the crucible that the marriage process is. I think that's awesome. Yeah, this is this is something really interesting. You said uh, a long time ago on Twitter. I think just when you were starting this up, Justin, you you uh, and I'll try tie this in with like sort of the skin in the game aspect that we're dealing with in idea market. The idea of putting something behind an idea or something you truly believe in. There has to be some sort of payment or skin in the game as you say in relation to what you'd be getting as as a facilitator of these but you something really great you said was that when you're married you can't have this modern attitude of like oh we could just get divorced that can't even be in the back of your mind because then immediately you're like you're riding the line where you're not truly on board with this idea so there has to be this this real skin in the game i mean how how can you create that do you think i mean not just with marriages as well how can you create a true uh, just to use the saying again, a true skin in the game. Yeah, it's a really, really tough question, and I would be, I'd be false posturing if I, if I, you know, tried to act like I have some way to solve it completely. But I mean, in the short term, my my best, my best attempt, the best thing I can offer you is that I do think that a very large lump sum payment to the marriage agency is <laughs> is, a, is a satisfying first first um, approximation. Now, obviously, I'm biased. Uh, cause that money will be going to me. So you have to discount what I'm saying, uh, you know, for sure. Or should you trust me? I don't know, but it does seem to be a start. Like if you, you know, if I'm going to, with my little team, find you a really high quality match who is also at a similar stage as you mentally in terms of just really wanting to exit the rat race of dating. And they're really just ready to settle down. You know, if I can, if I can deliver that, and and provide someone who's like basically solid in most dimensions and and is generally a good fit then you know um 
you know, we, I mean, we might, and we might end up asking people for like 10% of their net worth or something like that. Like some, some, some really, really meaningful amount of money that they're not going to want to walk away from. Now you can argue whether some costs are actually a bias. Some people think that, that that's actually a kind of faulty way of, of thinking about it anyway, but we do know that some costs are a, you know, a, a powerful, you know, kind of heuristic, whether you think they're a bias or not, they do seem to hold pretty strongly in, in, in how people think about things. So we do think that by basically being a pretext for a substantial sunk cost, then, you know, you're really not going to want to, to break that. And then there are other ways, like one would be bringing in more kind of social, social costs. And of course, this is historically what has always been the case, right? In small, you know, pre-modern communities, the idea of divorce was, you know, when, when everyone in your family and everyone in all the neighboring families would think that you're like an evil person for doing something, you know, you're probably not going to do it. Right. So that's always been a major, you know, historical, um, a f- a set of causes that, that prop up, you know, stable long-term marriages. Is there a way to recreate that? Maybe there might be. Um, I think that's just like a harder social engineering thing. I think in the future, like we might experiment with maybe to really make marriages arranged and make them work. We need to basically bring people's families on board. We need to Maybe maybe create some more significant kind of social structures where we try to kind of re-engineer that social pressure to to stay together. That's like I think more of a, a much more longer term elaborate um, system that that we we might end up having to 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 build in some way. I don't know. We'll see. In the short term, I'm hoping that uh, money can money can do it. I actually think the uh, large portion of net worth as payment idea seems pretty sound in terms of incentive alignment that if someone's not willing to pay that i think it's a really good filter for people who genuinely have the uh commitment level and the desire that they're expressing by taking avail of this service yeah i think it could work i mean it's it, it it's a bit rich because of course i would say this since uh, there's there's that kind of um incentive disalignment there in a way of course i as the person doing this i want to make money right and so um people might be skeptical but it does seem to be like a reasonable, a reasonable thing. And then I, I think we'll, we'll just have to be creative about, um, you know, moving forward on that. But that's as a first approximation, I think it makes sense. Yeah. If, if you solve the problem, you solve the problem. If you figure out the incentive alignment, how much you get paid is kind of of a secondary consequence. And that might matter from like a PR perspective or something. But in terms of the actual service, not at all. Yeah. So... We'll see. Stay tuned. But I'm I'm confident. I think we're going to make a marriage within within a year, at least one, at least one, maybe many more. We're just kind of going slow and trying to be careful about it because it's it's pretty nerve wracking, actually. I mean, now that now that we're getting down to it, it's like actually feels pretty. It's pretty scary, honestly. Do you think something similar could be done for friendships? Yeah, it's a good question. Asking for a friend, literally. <laughs> Askingforafriend.com. There it's it is. A good question. I'm not sure because friendships seem to me to be way more based on uh joy and fun and a kind of hard to fake or hard to hard to engineer um like pleasure you know and and so you know i think marriage like realistically marriages are like way more about you know marriage is like a long-term lifestyle engineering device that is like not at all about it's really not about happiness or like fun or you know hopefully you want to have some you want to marry someone you get along with and have fun of course um but it's kind of like that comes after, um, you know, that uh, for the most part, like being married is hard. It's stressful. It's challenging. It's ten- it can be tense. And um, 
it's really about, you know, the, the, the continuation of the species, the, you know, maintenance of yourself over very long periods of time and, and, uh, through, through thick and thin. So I think that's why it's more engineerable, um, maybe than friendship. That makes sense to me. And friendships often naturally unwind with life circumstances and there's not necessarily a moral yeah. cost for that. Yeah. Jumping back to our early conversation, I think a lot of this all revolves around credibility and the credibility of an idea and the le legitimization of an idea and whether or not something is truly believed to be true. And if it is, as you've been saying, Justin, people will pay for that in some form with time, with money, with what they consider to be value, and it becomes valuable. So I'm going to do a very crash segue into idea market here. And because you're, you, you yourself with indie thinkers, with your exit from the academy, and I think with the arranged marriages are dealing with how the true truth rises to the top above everything else and, and how we can find these truths through everything else. What do you think of the, the mechanisms, the functions that we're developing as a means to promote uh, you know, the real truths, finding their, finding their platform? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I'm definitely a fan of what you guys are doing. I think the big, the million dollar question that w I see as more of a kind of research agenda, I don't think anyone out there yet is really solving it or knows exactly how to solve it. But the, the, the problem or the challenge I'm most interested in is how you are able to, in the long run, separate sort of the, the, the shorter term social clout dynamics from the long term kind of truth value dynamics and i think i think that's probably the hardest problem to solve and and i'm i'm actually just not sure how you do that technically um i don't know if you guys have like a i know i know this is something you guys hope to be doing but is this something that you think you, like you're already doing or do you agree that that's a kind of longer term thing that needs to be figured out through like additional research and experimentation or what's your take on this kind of both in the short term, we are taking a more content-focused orientation than the social profiles. We launched the social profiles in February as the first product because it was it provided a solution to the uh, the categorization problem, the codification problem. How do you decide where an idea begins and ends? Well, if you have a social account, it sort of acts as an ETF of all of that person's published work. Second. Uh, we're not doing content at the very beginning because individual pieces of content tend to have a much shorter shelf life. If CNN publishes an article on Tuesday, maybe it's bombastic, maybe it's controversial, but chances are by Friday, people don't care anymore. And that short life means that public won't really have time to do price discovery on it. The market won't be able to send a meaningful signal. By contrast, social media accounts have this long life. People are posting on Twitter for years or have a YouTube account for years and build up a reputation and also the ability to curate short-term content. So by curating these long-term you know, attention assets or platforms as a social media account is, you sort of implicitly solve the short-term content problem because the people who have this long-term price discovered trust on their Twitter account, for example, will be a curation mechanism for the short-term content. They will endorse or reject the CNN article that comes out on Tuesday and is ignored by Friday. So those are two of the initial reasons that we started with that. Third is the income reason. Given that the upvotes that are cast for uh, a social media account earn 
interest through Compound. Having social media accounts means that we can pay that interest as an income stream to the owner of that account. The person doesn't have to buy their own tokens. They don't have to participate. They don't have to counter trade their biggest fans. They can just swing by and collect a check. And we figured this is a very powerful, not only growth hacking mechanism for getting people to join, but potentially a disruptive uh, economic model for enabling people, particularly journalists who are doing great work to escape paywall world to escape this contradiction between doing your best work and feeding your family. So that's the first primitive that we launched for all of those reasons. But largely because of the uh, problems that that you mentioned about, was it clout versus uh, truth and things like that, we are going to take a more content-focused approach uh, in the near future um, with and imitate Reddit's style of curation more closely. This can be tied back to social media accounts in various ways, but it provides a way of allowing the public to decide what's important without having to confuse it with the person who posts it or something like that. It sort of isolates the content from the personality in a way that can then sort of be tied back together. So to me, I mean, my my constructive criticism of that would be, it to me, that feels like so long as, so long as other people's opinions is essentially the 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 judge of last resort it feels to me that's always going to be still orbiting in the world of 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 fashion and and kind of social clout dynamics and so if you compare like what you're describing to um another type of primitive for you know uh thinking about the truthfulness of statements to to me the, the primitive has to be something like um the the prediction market where basically instead of opinions we're talking about specific uh spe- specific statements or expectations that then can be in some objective way uh you know uh, assessed or or compared and and ideally there's a kind of uh hard economic logic whereby whatever is doing the final assessing gets rewarded for being right and punished for being for being false and so to me to me, like there needs to be some kind of hard, external, and and profoundly kind of anti-social or let's say non-social um, kind of uh, veridiction uh, protocol of some kind. And, pr- and prediction markets, I think, are one very interesting and, and powerful example of that. Um, I wonder if there's like, I wonder why you wouldn't just want a like, why would the ETF of a person not just be their collection of past bets and the performance of of those bets or something like that as opposed to opinions which have this kind of like constantly fluctuating uh value based on opinion so if take epstein for instance you know um i mean some some are so so you might say like you know i bet i bet that uh in the in the in the long term evidence will emerge that uh epstein did not kill himself and maybe like the 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 actual contribution of that particular bet to my ETF's value is relatively small because it's far off because it's indeterminate for a very long time and so maybe maybe that doesn't contribute that much right but if I predict that you know um, uh, Jake Paul is going to knock out Tyron Woodley and that turns out to be true well 
you know, then I, that's a more direct, you know, immediate kind of boost to my, to my credibility. Cause I got something right that other people couldn't get right. And, uh, and yeah, you get the idea. So, so why not just build a portfolio of, of, of bets on prediction markets and then make the individual's ETF a, a weighted, a weighted average of that? There are two reasons why we're not doing that. And I'll also say that I do think there is a place for prediction market uh, data as information about who's worthwhile on idea market. I think there's a place in the ecosystem for that. Um, but the main reasons that we are not focusing on it or relying on it, one is there's an enormous amount of information that can't be sufficiently codified to decide yes or no, especially in any meaningful time frame. And you know that's 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 face value. Obvious, you can't decide. You know, does God exist on a prediction market? Second, right, but you yeah. can take people's bets on very long term bets as 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 data, right? Sure, sure. And and so it's like if if the if the whole market says and is willing to put money on, you know, um, one day in a hundred years or something like that, there being evidence that shows, you know. Um, like, like a, a judge or a court will, will consider that Epstein did not kill himself or something like that. Like, sure, maybe it's going to take a long time for that market to clear, but there's no reason why there can't be a long-term market with an open, with, with open, um, and, and, and so simply, so another, yeah. So I, I mean, I see the problem, but you can still have those bets and, um, right alongside the ones that do clear and that are codified. I like that. Fortunately, that's something that other people have recognized the value in far earlier than I and have built things for that, that maybe we can incorporate and encourage people to participate in in that kind of a fashion. In the meantime, the two reasons that we're not relying on prediction markets in particular is not only because of the reason I mentioned before, that there's a vast swath of things that can't be codified well, especially if a decision has to be made based on information that we don't have, or based only on ideological or narrative interpretations and things like that. The second reason is we as a culture drastically overrate the usefulness of creating a sense of certainty in order to create a sense of consensus. Our sort of pathway to consensus in the public for thousands of years has been authority obtains the truth and then disseminates it. It was the church for a long time. It's been the scientific mainstream for a long time. It's corporate media now. And what the internet means is we now have all this information. We don't really have to look to a single uh, authority. It reveals the basically the certainty of the old authorities is now only data for our own uncertainty. We are all sort of faced with this inescapable uncertainty. And a large consequence of that is it separates finding the truth and persuading people of it or getting people to agree as problems. They're completely separate problems now. And what we find is most important in persuading people now is making sure that they feel heard, making sure that they feel the battle of ideas is fair, making sure that their objections are registered in the conversation. And that's why we're building a platform that's far more geared to registering opinions than it is to determining and then disseminating a certainty. Makes sense. Makes sense. I like it. Okay. I'm glad. <laughs> is there any, I mean, 
What are a couple of ideas? What's an idea you're long on and what's an idea you're short on? We've, we've mentioned Shkreli, but is there anything at the moment that you're really hyped on that you think people are missing? Somewhat random, but just again, my kind of obsession for the month is um, I think on-chain analytics is really exciting and really promising new discipline, which I think is is extremely underrated. Like I think people don't appreciate that basically with blockchain markets, we now have a fundamentally new type of data source that traditional markets just didn't have. And so I'm, I'm really pretty struck by it. And the reason why I think it's deeply underrated still is that uh, if you actually look at what people are doing right now as as on-chain analysis, and I'm sorry for people who don't know what I'm talking about, just, I'm just referring to basically um, blockchains produce all this network data because if they're if as, as distributed public ledgers, there's all of this data basically about who's buying what, when, and where. And um, so like imagine if for the US dollar or for US stocks um, or bonds or whatever, if you... Imagine if there was like a public data set of, of every individual person and who they moved a dollar or a stock or an option to uh, and when they did it. So that's what blockchains provide for the first time ever. We have, we have the, these markets that produce all of this uh, metadata basically about transactions and about the people making those, about, not, the, not the personal identifying information about the people, but you know the accounts that are engaged in transactions. And so I don't think people realize that uh, this is like a massive source of leverage for understanding uh, these markets. Because if you look at like um, the people that are currently, you know, kind of pioneering this field that they call on-chain analytics, which is basically uh, mining this this metadata of the blockchain networks, uh, in particular, looking for leverage, predictive leverage on price movements, you know, historically predicting the uh, stock prices is like the textbook case of something you can't do. And it's kind of like a, a stupid fool's errand, like, you know, um, you know, a perpetual motion machine or the fountain of youth or something like that. Um, and so typically if someone says they're building a model just to predict stock prices, they're probably kind of cuckoo or don't really understand statistics or, you know, maybe there's, there's, there's teams in like hedge funds who, uh, do some, some kind of work, some kind of like this. Um, but now I think actually like there's, there's actually an opportunity to get predictive leverage on crypto stock prices through on-chain analytics, because a people don't know that this, like the smartest people out there who are doing quantitative analysis for hedge funds or whatever, um, you know, these institutions haven't really uh, dedicated resources to crypto yet on uh, mass at least. And so, um, and I, I, my bread and butter academically is actually you know time series uh, statistics. It's actually I, I read a lot about philosophy and stuff because that's what I'm interested in the past few years, but my real bread and butter is, is actually a statistics and and uh, specifically time series forecasting. Uh, and so, yeah, this is my crazy idea for the month that I actually think there's a source of there's a there's a freely available source of predictive leverage on crypto price movements. And I I don't think any and if you actually look at what passes for on chain analysis, it's like people eyeballing line graphs. It's like people will take like a screenshot of like some on chain metric and they'll be like, this suggests that the price is going up or this suggests the price is going down. Um, and, and so it's actually quite poor quality for, for the best stuff out there right now is really poor quality. I think you're going to see quantitative analysts start pouring into this and eventually there'll be like massive hedge funds, like doing, uh, time series forecasting on, on chain analytics, but I don't think it exists yet. Um, but you could do it, you could like start doing it right now. Um, and I actually have, um, but it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, 
totally new territory. And I think it's still extremely underrated by definition because I don't see smart. I don't see like statistically trained people doing it in public. Um, so that's something I'm working on right now. I think it's underrated. Um, on overrated, um, I think um, uh, longevity, probably, maybe. I think that's kind of a fool's errand. I mean, I'm all, I'm all for people trying to do badass stuff. So I definitely am not poo-pooing anyone like working on that. But um, I think the interest in it is probably overrated. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I, I kind of think like historically humans have always wanted a fountain of youth. It's like, again, a textbook example of kind of the, the chaotic, uh, pursuits of, of, uh, vainglorious and arrogant human beings. Right. So I, th I kind of think like the number of smart people who are like bullish on longevity and really interested in longevity. And I have many friends who are like that. So I'm not like throwing shade on anyone, but, uh, personally, I think that idea is, is way overrated and, uh, it's probably just another it's it's a continuation of the of the kind of idiotic search for a fountain of youth. Mike, have you got anything to add there? Yeah, I'm wondering is there something adjacent to longevity that may be a better focus in your view? For the people who are interested in longevity, like what would you recommend they focus on instead that might meet similar needs or impulses or drives or yield similar benefits without uh what may be this sort of, uh, you know, ancient fantasy that they're trying to fulfill. Yeah. I mean, I, okay. I should, I should have been more precise because I do think we will make achievements in longevity. Like we will learn to extend our lives. We have been for a while, like long lifespans have been increasing for a while. So yeah, that's granted for sure. And it's perfectly worthwhile to look for ways to improve lifespan. I guess I meant more the living forever dream that, that, that that's like a, a, what a lot of people, um, want. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's a, it's a kind of like classic, just sort of alienated Westerners, like fear of death kind of thing. Uh, -huh. so, so that, okay. So that, that, thank you for the question. Cause it kind of forced me to refine a little bit. So what I would say is, I guess, um, for people who are, you know, really wanting to live forever and, and that's kind of, you know, uh, how, how they're motivated, maybe I would push them to look for, uh, more marginal Im improvements of, of, of health span. Because I think that there's there will be achievements in improving health span, uh, but um, yeah, I think that yeah yes that that's probably like the marginal the marginal you know change I I would I would encourage because I, I mean I do know a lot of people who are interested in longevity, but it's pretty clear like they're afraid of death I think, um, and so I would just encourage them to not be afraid of death and to live. And to, and 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 to and to focus on living a dignified death, uh, have, having their own enjoy, not enjoying, but you know, um, you know, um, living through, living up to their own dignified death. I think there's there's nothing more sad than someone dying who is like genuinely wanting to live forever, because then life, then you're losing the game of life, right? <laughs> so um, the the change I would encourage people to make if 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 you're if if you know if you are the type of person who's kind of like Oh, death is just a disease. We have to solve it. We have to overcome it. You know, I would, I would say, Prepare to yeah, die. sure. That's a good goal and and do everything you can to, to expand, to, ex to expand lifespan and health span, but also be prepared to, 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 to have a dignified death and go out, you know, go out, you know, with, with, with dignity and win the game, win the game of life by dying a dignified death. Don't lose the game of life by trying to hopefully hold out for some kind of perpetual fountain of youth that 
you know, people throughout history have stupidly tried to, you know, cling to. I like that a lot. James, do you have something to add? And if not, I have a, a, a follow-up. No, no, no. Go ahead. Cool. So one of the one of the reasons I appreciate your work and one of the things I'm interested in is your Christianity. And I am I am new to Christianity. I accepted Jesus about 10 months ago, and I was still am really. I'm still am the son of uh grandson of Holocaust survivors. And both my parents are fully Jewish. They got the DNA test. I'm like 99.8% Ashkenazi Jew or something like that. Like it doesn't get much more serious than that. And so I didn't, I didn't come to Jesus easily. It was kind of a long, weird uh, process, but it was a discovery. Like I would even call it scientific in the sense that when I stopped caring what the reality was, there he was. And in the sense of undervalued ideas, especially in modernity, I'd like to ask you in what ways your Christianity makes you a freak, what kind of special knowledge you might have because of it or uh, interpretations that you might have, ways of living it that might be unique to you because of your intellectual pursuits. I'm just interested in that whole field. Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I should probably start by saying that I, you know, I, I definitely have never positioned myself as an authority on it. And, you know, I try very hard to not kind of occupy this like influencer Christian kind of space. Like I, I I don't really have too much to teach anyone about it. I don't think I'm not, I'm not theologically sophisticated. Um, and nonetheless, for me, basically I have a, I, so I have a very kind of pedestrian attitude towards it. Like it just seems true <laughs> when you look at it. At, holistically i'm just like when I, when i when i look at all of the data including you know sense data including you know emotional data including personal history data including just the full gamut of 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 data that we have available to us as humans and i start you know kind of really looking at you know the the christian philosophy i was raised catholic so i did go to sunday school and all that but i don't really remember that much from from any of it and as an adult when i really kind of you know, started going back to it and really thinking about it. It just, there, there was a way in which it just basically looked to me like this is the, this is like the closest approximation to a, to a true and adequate and complete um, system of philosophy for life itself, not just for a particular discipline or for particular domain, but for, you know, um, uh, a, a framework for the human condition as such. It just seemed to me to be the body of work and the 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 uh, the the framework that has the best fit with the entire uh, condition which we find ourselves in as human beings. And most most philosophies and most you know intellectual pursuits and and you know scientific frameworks or what have you don't even really try to do that. That's not even the game that they're in, right? To to do science, you have to kind of by definition break off a very small piece of the puzzle that relates to material empirical existence. And so a lot of the most respected kind of intellectual disciplines and ways of knowing the world are by their own definition, by their own construction, not really aiming for a uh, the maximally general philosophy of life itself. Um, they, they make the progress they make precisely by breaking things down into a smaller subdivision and tackling that in in a more in a more precise and defined way and so that's great and that and that's and that's great and science is by far the the best and 
And at this point, really the, the only competitor we have for understanding how the empirical world works and, and being able to make predictions and engineer things in the physical world um, in a way that it succeeds. Uh, science, it, what we call science is, is the winner of that game, bar none. And there's no competitor really for when it comes to understanding material reality, right? Um, but of course, we know that we're, in, we're embedded in other, we're embedded in larger systems, right? And material reality is a subsystem of, of something larger that we, we don't understand. Obviously, everyone agrees to that. And so, um, yeah, we have to make decisions on, we, we, don't, we don't just have to make decisions as human beings within these particular margins defined by these particular uh, disciplines, right? So yeah, we have to make some decisions about, is this building going to stand up or is this plane going to fly? And yeah, you want to use science to make those decisions, but we also have to make decisions that are embedded in this this ether that we don't understand, right? You know, who should we love? Who? How should we? How should we um, carry ourselves through the world? What should we do? You know, what is beautiful? What what is not beautiful? What is what is good? What is not good? Um, you know, we have to make. We don't have the. We don't have the ability to not make decisions about those things, because even if you just ignore them, you're making the decision to ignore them, and so. When you start looking around for, like, of all, you know, human effort in human history to figure out, like, what are the best heuristics for making those decisions at the highest, most general level, where science just doesn't have much to say, where formal, you know, uh, philosophy just doesn't have that much to say. It just seems to me to be true. It seems to me to be empirically true that Christianity seems to be by far the most sophisticated, accurate, sensible, logical, and uh, just fitting system for that highest level set of questions. And I do, like you said, like I think you alluded to, Mike, I do see that as, as I see that claim I just made as absolutely defensible from an empirical and, and philosophical uh, perspective. You just have to basically define the parameters in, that, in, that, in the right way that, that I tried to do um, in the past few minutes. So that's, that's kind of my, my take on Christianity. And other than that, I don't, you know, I don't have much value to add when it comes to like what particular books of the gospel meant. Like, I don't fucking know. And frankly, there's a lot of like what there's a lot of Christian belief that I can't really explain in my own words why it makes sense. Like the more the more kind of, uh, you know, faith based stuff that that kind of seems to contradict material, you know, the the the, the expectations of, of scientific materialism. You know, the example that I use often is like the resurrection, right? This is a really, really crucial um, kind of part of, of, of the Christian worldview and, and any, any, almost any Christian you meet who is going to say that, you know, to be a Christian, one of the, one of the beliefs you, you have and must affirm is that, you know, um, Christ, Christ was buried and he, and he rose from, he rose from the tomb. And if you can't affirm that Christ rose from the tomb, then you really can't affirm Christianity. And you know what, as a, as a modern scientific person, I have a hard time understanding what that means exactly. And I, there are, there are many, many beliefs kind of implied by Christianity that I cannot in good conscience say to you or to, to any public audience, you know, I, I can't really explain why or how it's possible that Christ w- was resurrected. On some level, if I'm being absolutely honest, I can't necessarily say to you or anyone else that I have a deep conviction in the empirical reality that Christ was resurrected. I, I do not just from what I know, from what, from, from how I have been trained from, from the, the, the moment in world history where 
I have been, you know, subjectivated and I have, I have been, um, you know, a mind that has learned about how the world works for whatever reason, it's most smart people today say that it's impossible for someone to be resurrected. We, we have no evidence that anyone has ever been resurrected. It's never happened before. Uh, we don't have any reason to believe that there is any mechanism in the world whereby someone or some where, whereby someone on earth and, and Jesus walked on earth could be resurrected. Um, and so I have to throw my hands up at something like the resurrection, but here's maybe my unique, like one of my little unique talking points about Christianity. And then I'll, I'll stop lecturing. Sorry. Is that, uh, I don't think struggling to believe certain things like that necessarily means you're not a Christian or disqualifies you from Christianity. And, and I would go even further in saying that the naive version of that statement that, you know, Christ walked on earth. He was a human, he was, you know, he was a human, he died, his, his organs stopped working just like ours stopped working when we die. He was put in this, he was put in a tomb just like we were put in a tomb, uh, just like we're putting a, you know, a, a, a casket or whatever. And then like his, you know, the atoms of his corpse kind of like turned into something like smoky and kind of came out of the, you know, it's like when you actually start breaking it down, I don't think that believing in the resurrection necessarily binds you to like any particularly naive, like material interpretation, basically, because it's just, it's just too dumb, right? It's like, um, like, and so I think the mistake that people make is, is they think that to be a Christian, you have to affirm things that like you think are dumb. Like, like to me, how do I put it? It's like the way I solve this is I say that as far as I know, with my working brain and my knowledge, the idea of someone being resurrected is dumb. Like it does, it's never happened before. I don't really believe that it can happen because I have no reason to believe it can happen. And when it comes to empirical reality, the only mechan- the only tools I have are like the tools of inference that the, from, from science. Right. And so, um, but what I can say is that whatever the gospels mean by resurrection is maybe something I don't fully understand. And maybe we, none of us fully understand it. And you know what? Maybe back then people weren't as stupid as we think they were. And maybe actually what they say, the resurrection, and they say they believed in the resurrection, maybe it was actually something a little bit more nuanced than what we today think it means with our like scientifically structured understanding of, of, of things. And so it's a bit of a cop-out, um, and, but, it, but I, some people will say it's a cop-out, but I think, it's, I think this is a coherent way of basically squaring the circle of being like a rational, sophisticated mind who like only believes that which is true and, and, and doesn't just like, um, you know, buy into like certain dogmas because they want to be religious, um, but also affirming like the full, the full breadth of, of Christianity by saying that basically I don't think Christianity requires you to believe in anything that you scientifically believe to be implausible, but wherever you encounter something that sounds scientifically implausible, they probably meant something else. And I don't know what that is yet, but as a Christian, my commitment is to figuring out what that means. And that's all I can really promise anyone. But I think that's enough. I think that, I think that's enough to be a Christian. Sorry, I kind of repeated myself and went on. You can edit some of that out later. It's more verbose than necessary, but it's complicated. No, that's fine. I I wanted it. I asked for it. That's great. I'm going to have one, one quick follow-up uh, if I may tempt you to another lecture. And that is, if the uh, the historical story of the resurrection doesn't really speak to you. What's an aspect that that really does that really you know moves under the surface of your work and your life uh, in that respect? Man, I have to admit that the, when it comes down to it, 
my relationship to Christianity is, is very, very intellectual and cognitive. And it's not that emotional. Like I've never Got really it. felt any connection to God. I've never, you know, um, I feel pretty distant from God. I feel pretty like, you know, when I read the stuff and when I listen to the sermons in church and the honest truth is it always just feels very alien and distant and it not much resonates, honestly. Um, again, it's just like intellectually, it looks true and I'm willing to bet that it's true. And so that's to me what faith is. It's, it's just a bet. It's just like, this looks true enough that I'm going to bet on it. But frankly, a lot of it doesn't make sense to me and doesn't really feel like anything to me. And a lot of the stuff people say about like feeling God in their heart and all that, I've never felt anything like that. Um, now, having said that, um, I would say like, um, I like confession. I think confession is really cool and smart and um, it feels good to me. To con I like going to confession. You know, I will like very often, you know, like cry during confession and it feels like very, it feels very valuable. It feels very real and very like the confession mechanism. I think is, is, is social scientifically sophisticated and, and psychologically and emotionally just very, very sensible and on point. Like it, it clearly, clearly does something specific that I think is very wholesome. And, and I like that. Um, what else? Um, marriage, mar marriage, probably. Cause you know, marriage is a sacrament of course. And it's probably one of the reasons why, you know, divorce rates aren't looking so good and you know, why people aren't getting married today. You know, it's, 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 uh, at the end of the day, it is a sacrament and for it to really have its full force and function, it probably has to be, it has to be kind of understood and practiced as a sacrament to some degree. And, uh, the failure to do that, I think explains a lot of, of the marriage culture today. Um, but I think what marriage is as a sacrament resonates with me very strongly personally. And I think the, the ideas that I bring to the table around like the arranged marriage project and, um, you know, these kind of like unpopular or sometimes kind of unsavory ideas around like marriage being, you know, the stuff we talked about before that kind of somewhat cuts, cu cuts across the grain of, you know, certain happy go lucky, secular, liberal notions of, of marriage. I think that that is in large part because the marriage as a sacrament resonates very deeply with my nature. And I get it. I get it. I get it pretty naturally on an intuitive level. So those are, those would be two examples. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, I dread to, I dread to ask this question, Justin, but, uh, are you working on anything new? <laughs> Well, yeah, a couple things. So <laughs> I am uh, going to be going to be uh, publishing my second book soon, sometime. Uh, let's say I'm, I'm just saying broadly, 2022. Um, but that's going to be that's kind of becoming a, a top priority, and um, it's probably going to be a collection of my past essays combined with a bunch of new and original essays. Um, and funny enough, James, uh, I provisionally calling it Exit Theory. And then your book came out, which is also has exit in the title. And so now it's giving me second thought. I'm thinking maybe I should uh, give your book some more, some more space and maybe come up with a different title, but it's provisionally called exit theory. And it's basically just going to collect uh, my, my, my main thoughts and kind of theoretical frameworks around thinking about this question of exit versus voice. And, you know, I'm, I'm uh, fairly well known, I think for uh, being strongly in the exit camp. I think there are a series of kind of institutional and structural dynamics where um, increasingly exit is the only choice for uh, an increasing number of people at an increasing number of margins. I do just think that, you know, exit is the order of the day. And I want to, I want to kind of put in one place 
all of the reasons that I think that and 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 also put some scope conditions around it, what exactly that means and doesn't mean. And yeah, I, I have a kind of larger meta, a larger kind of historical meta narrative around why um, exit is increasingly the order of the day. So um, yeah, that'll be my second book, currently provisionally called Exit Theory. And uh, what else? At the moment, I am really interested in uh, on-chain metrics, actually, because I, I like what like I was saying before, when I actually think about like what I could uniquely do that other people can't do. Um, this actually might be because also because if you just look at the people that are doing like on-chain analysis, it's so new, but it's so buzzy. That stuff people love to share it. People are obsessed with it because it, it speaks to like the deepest human interest in, you know, what does the future hold, especially around like financial returns, right? It's like that from a from the content game, there's like no, you know, other than maybe porn, like making being able to make interesting financial predictions with some kind of like defensible um approach that's new. Uh, there, there's like from the, in the content game, there's, there's hardly anything kind of more enticing than that, than that other than maybe porn. And so given the fact that I have this like professional background in, in statistics and time series forecasting that a lot of people don't even know I have, cause I've been talking mostly about philosophy, honestly, my, my thinking over the past few weeks, what I'm most interested in is like, I might have to actually buckle down for a few weeks, maybe even a few months and just like dedicate myself to learning on-chain metrics and making, uh, really developing this field using statistical tools. I think it could be like a massive, massive opportunity. Um, so I, I'm actually really thinking about maybe, maybe investing serious effort into it. Um, yeah, I, I could, I could, I could, I could uh, say a bunch of other things I'm always thinking about, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll spare you. the The other thing would just be I'm I'm hiring someone for in, to run indie thinkers. So this is like a major, a major change in my and a major step up. Hopefully, it's a major challenge. I've never hired anyone, um, but I have. Um, so I'm a little intimidated by that, but. Uh, I'm ex- I'm really excited to get indie thinkers the day to day responsibilities off my plate and get that get that onto someone else who who hopefully can do an even better job and then return more to to my own intellectual work. Sounds great, man. Mike, is there anything uh, you'd like to add? Yeah, I'm just I'm interested in your answer to the question uh, regarding indie thinkers. I've been a member for a couple months now. I really like it. I really like the interaction and the level of standards that that people have for interactions. There's not a lot of spam everything is is generally interesting in one way or another i'm wondering if you see something in particular that unites uh members or that everyone kind of has in common um it's one thing to say renegade intellectual i'm wondering if, if there's something more specific or or even uh along those lines that you could point out yeah it's a good question well this might sound a little like promotional of it and i don't mean to do that but thinking honestly the honest truth is I'm I'm I've been really really pleasantly surprised by the collaborative willingness, let's call it something like that. Because you know, when you look at a lot of communities online, whether it be Discord servers or this or that or whatever, Facebook groups, so many different proliferating platforms where, you know, communities emerge. When it comes down to actually individuals asking other people to do stuff together, th- there's often like a, a very very strong inertia against actually doing anything and and I was, you know, prepared for indie thinkers to have a, a, a lot of that inertia, that that kind of um, um, difficulty getting that stuff off the ground. And I've been very, very uh, pleased to observe that. I think what a lot of people are bringing in, and what and it makes sense when you think about the type of people that are going to self-select into this community. One of the things I think that 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 this community really selects for is like genuine and and authentic like willingness and propensity to actually 
participate in suggestions and ideas of others. So there have been like many people who are doing collaborations in the community who I didn't, I didn't connect them. I didn't introduce them at all. And um, it's often even more impressively to me, more interesting to me is it's stuff that has no positive, like uh, financial or, or instrumental benefit whatsoever, like purely, purely edifying, purely uh, intellectual people doing each other's YouTube channels, people doing each other's podcasts that they both just started and they have no audience whatsoever, but they're actually collaborating and following through and being consistent for weeks on end for the passion of it, for the, for the, for the will that they have to really pursue it. And they're just, they just want other people with that similar intelligence, energy, and will to actually do the work for the intrinsic reasons. Um, I think, I think that's, that's the, the real commonality because um, there's no other way to explain why the collaborations have, have taken off so well when the instrumental rewards are often quite very, very, very modest. So I've been pleasantly surprised by that. It's much better than I was expecting. That's great. And uh, I don't mind it being promotional at all. I think that's uh, warranted. Well, thanks. Thanks for asking. Sure. I have a couple other questions if, if you have the time. Yeah. One, it might be a little bit difficult to answer on the fly, but I'm wondering if you have a favorite metaphor right now or a mental model that it just seems to be following you around like a shadow at the moment. Hmm. A metaphor. That's a good question. It's a good question. Well, you know, I like... I don't know that I have a uh, fancy coined phrase for it, uh, and I'm not sure that I have a, a beautiful metaphor for it, but there is a kind of thing in my mind lately that, that I just think about a ton. It's not that impressive. It's not that novel. You've probably heard other people talk about something similar in their own way, but it's really been at the forefront of my mind recently about how true it is. It's It's just the, it's the way that, quietly doing hard work every day just dominates anything else namely the splashy public you know fancy short term like wins and successes and and things like that and it's just like that is just really 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 profoundly true i believe and i see it a lot and you know I just, yeah, I just believe that deeply. It's, it, it seems more and more true to me the more I look around and the more I look at, at my own life. It's like, if you can, if you have like an idea that is plausible and real, and even if no one agrees, even if no one knows, even if you're not publicizing it, even if the media doesn't want to cover it, even if you don't have that many followers, if you're right and you have an idea that is right and you can wake up every day and drag yourself to the desk and work on it for several hours every day for a year, for two years, for more, like you're going to fucking win. You, you can't lose. You really can't lose. Um, if you're with the caveat that you're just minimally self-reflective and updating along the way based on what seems to be working better, what seems to be not working better um, or not working so well. It's like you, you really, if you have that basic frame for what you are doing with your life, no matter what the idea is, not only can you not lose, but you're going to destroy everyone else who all along the way looks like, from your perspective, looks like they're winning faster. It looks like they're doing something buzzier. It looks like they're doing something that's getting more traction faster. Um, it looks like they have a better idea. It looks like they're, you know, it's all, you're always going to see these other people who look like they're doing better or 
you know, they're, they're, they're zooming ahead of you and you're, and, and you're always going to be having that feeling and it's going to be a negative feeling of like, you know, oh, I wish I could do that sexy thing, or I wish I could move faster like them, or I wish I could get that, you know, spike of, of media buzz or whatever, or I wish I could get that famous person to endorse me as well. You know, it's like all of those things are superficial short-term things and they're, they're just blips and you're going to see those things and other people having those things. And you're going to feel jealous and envious and discouraged. But like a lot, what a lot, what, what a lot of those people can't do. And probably the hardest thing to do at the end of the day for anyone is simply putting in large volumes of really hard painstaking work over very long periods of time consistently. So if you can just do that and nothing else, not only can you not lose, but five years later, two years later, 10 years later, whatever, you're going to look back at the people you were envious of, and you're going to be crushing them. And like, that's what's up. I feel like you were saying that to me personally. No, no, I, no, I pre- no, no yeah. of course not. No, 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 no. I, I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, I meant that as a, as a, I appreciate what you're saying. And also thank you. There's a, there's a personal note of encouragement that I take from that. That's very, that's very great. Oh, totally. Gotcha. I thought, I thought you were saying that I, you're, I was accusing you of being one of the people. No, I'm no, 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 no. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I, cool. I just appreciate that. Um, the last, the last thing I'd like to squeak in there, uh, and James, I'd, I'd love if you have something else too, but what I'd, I'd like to ask here is in your line of work, you've, you've experienced sort of getting, penetrating the boundaries of what's acceptable in academia and saying, it was not worth staying inside those boundaries. And the internet, the market kind of has its own boundaries. So they're more sort of fashion-based, taboo-based. And as a renegade intellectual, yeah inevitably have some weird ideas. You have some unacceptable ideas. They're going to offend people. Things are going to happen. To what extent do you respect that trouble? And to what extent do you just get in trouble? Like, where's, how do you, what do you feel the right relationship is to sensibilities in that respect? Yeah. I mean, I do think that you want to find in your own mind of all the things you believe to be true, which ones are the most explosive socially. And, and you do want to, you do want to zero in on those and you do want to push those to their limits and you do want to provoke that controversy. I I do think that's good. And and you should do that. I think it's, 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 it's cool. It's, um, impressive. It's bold. And it's both, you know, that, that controversy is a measure of the impact you're having on the way the world thinks. It's like growing pains in the world's mind in a way when, when you say something that you, you really deeply believe to be true, not necessarily because it's profound, but just because, you know, it, it, it's, it, as far as you can see, you have a high conviction that this idea is true and you, you know that people hate it. You know that it's, it's on sensitive territory. You know it's going to ruffle some feathers. To, to, to seek out that, that ruffling is good, is good to do, I believe, so long as the idea you really believe to be true. And so long as the, the truth of the idea comes before the desire to ruffle feathers, that's the key. That, and that's where I think people get tripped up is, you know, there's a certain type of personality who likes to ruffle the feathers. And so then they'll, they'll just kind of uh, cozy up to any idea that ruffles feather, the feathers, right? Um, that's, that's the wrong way to go. That's the mistaken, the mistaken path. And it's very, very easy to switch those up. It, it, you know, if you do have the taste for controversy and, and you, you can handle that, um, it's very easy to one day you say something you really believe to be true. It's controversial. You get a lot of new followers. You also get a lot of new haters, but it's kind of exciting. 
you're ruffling feathers. And then before you know it, every day you're just like churning out crazy ideas to get to get the controversy going. No, that's the failure mode. You want to avoid that. But I do believe you do want to figure out of the things you think are true, which which ones ruffle the feathers the most. And then you do want to go out as far you want to go as far out on on the edge of ruffling those feathers as you can. Um, you want, but no further than you can, you know. Uh, and everyone has their limits. Everyone is going. Everyone has certain lifestyle constraints and personality limits. Um, and so I don't think there's like you know I don't think every single person has some kind of like equally maximalist obligation to like say every crazy thing they think is true. But I do think that if you're in the idea business and you you know you want to you want to work on serious ideas over time in the public sphere, it's a good general heuristic to find the ideas in your mind you do believe to be true, and that are the most explosive, and challenge yourself to to be as public and 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 provocative and 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 controversial with the expression of those ideas as you can handle, and no 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 more than that. Love it. Thank you. It seems like a. Very good place to finish up. Um, yeah, Justin Murphy, thanks very much. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's a pleasure.